What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Jeff, you know, if someone came in here, they wouldn't believe with it. See? What? You and me with long faces plunged into despair because we find out a man didn't kill his wife. We're two of the most frightening ghouls I've ever known. Frightening ghoul. I'm going to say not a term that's been applied to Grace Kelly very often. That's Kelly with James Stewart in Hitchcock's rear window, which turned 70 this year. This week, we are embarking on a ghoulish endeavor, pitting rear window against vertigo. That's right. It's a 50s Hitchcock double sacred cow. That and more. We're two of the most frightening ghouls I've ever known. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. By the end of this show, Josh, we should have a definitive answer not only to the question of what is Hitchcock's greatest film, but also possibly what is the best film of the 1950s. And since the 1950s is arguably the greatest decade in the history of film, our answer to those first two questions may also be the answer to the question, what's the greatest film of all time? There's a lot at stake in this show. No small task ahead of us, indeed. (laughs) That is, if I decide to play along, because having to choose between Rear Window and Vertigo has been weighing on me all day. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, you're going to play along. You're going to be you're going to be pinned down, <laughs> what sir. What if I don't by, have an answer by the end of this episode? I could refuse. If you don't have one now, your uh-huh. job is to come to one in our conversation, okay? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to put it on you. There you go. To convince me one way or another. So, why Hitchcock now? Well, Rear Window is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year, as good a time as any to give it the sacred cow treatment. And as we've noted, it is often your default answer to the question, what is your favorite movie? Yeah. And I've used that it way for a while. I've used that frequently and no one looks at me aghast. So I think it, it's a safe answer. And sure, you know, I've, I've longed believed it. We'll see if I still believe it at the end of this episode. Now, also all films that get a sacred cow review are eligible for entry into the prestigious and mysterious film spotting <laughs> pantheon. So that's on the line this week. For Rear Window, Vertigo already in the Pantheon. Yes. As if we didn't have enough reasons to take a look at this pair of 50s Hitchcock movies. Well, coming up very soon. Too soon. I'm not ready. So much homework to do. It's the ninth annual Film Spotting Madness Tournament. The subject of this year's tourney is the films of the 1950s. So again, lots of things at stake. How do we seed Vertigo in Rear Window? Which one goes higher? I think they're both almost surely in the top 10. But we don't know where exactly they're going to rank in terms of that seating. And then how do we actually think about voting if it comes down to voting for or against those movies, Josh? I mean, that would be fantastic if there was like a final four pairing with the two of them. I could see it happening for sure. We're going to get to 1958's Vertigo later in the show. But first, it is Rear Window, which, as we've said, is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. So released in September of 1954, it did go on to be nominated for four Oscars, including Hitchcock's fourth Best Director nomination. Now, if you look at Sight & Sound's Greatest Films of All Time poll, which gets published every decade, the last time they did that poll in 2022, Rear Window came in at 34. On that same list, Vertigo slipped from number one to number two. 
Jimmy Stewart is L.B. Jeff Jeffries, a professional photographer and war vet who has earned his reputation for taking pictures in dangerous, remote, and death-defying circumstances. When we meet Jeffries, he's confined to a wheelchair in his Greenwich Village apartment five weeks into a six-week recovery for a broken leg suffered on the job. It's summer, temps are steaming hot, and to pass the time, Stewart looks out his window and studies the lives of his neighbors. Single people and couples, some happy, others lonely, despondent, or at each other's throats, or worse, one of them may even have committed a murder. All the while, Stuart Jeffries is himself teetering on the precipice of coupledom, his solitary, adventure-filled life threatened by the specter of marriage to his high-society girlfriend, Lisa, played by Grace Kelly. There can't be that much difference between people and the way they live. We all eat, talk, drink, laugh, wear clothes. Well, now look, now look. If you're saying all this because you don't want to tell me the truth, because you're hiding something from me, then maybe I can understand. I'm not hiding anything. It's just that I It doesn't I want... make sense. What's so different about it here from over there or any place you go that one person couldn't live in both places just as easily? Some people can, if you just let me what explain What is it for traveling you? from one place to another taking pictures? This is like being a tourist on an endless vacation. Okay, now that's your opinion. You're entitled to it. Now let me give you my It's side. ridiculous to say that it can only be done by a special private little group of anointed people. I made a simple statement. A, a, a true statement, but I'll, I can back it up if you just shut up for a minute. But if your opinion is as rude as your manner, I don't think I care to hear it. Oh, come on, I'll simmer down. You... Stuart and Kelly, Lisa and Jeff is right where I'd like to start our conversation, Josh. I mean, of course I want to know whether something shocking transpired on this viewing for you. Or, like Jeff, were your expectations validated? Is the movie you saw this time the masterpiece you've always seen? And if so, why? What is it fundamentally that makes it your favorite film of all time? Is it what it's about? The ingenuity of how it's about it? The combination of the two? We'll get to that, but since we're talking about Hitchcock, I've got to build up the suspense a little. Maybe you've seen the men will literally blank instead of going to therapy meme. Sure. Incidentally, men will literally take a case they shouldn't, fall in love with the woman they're tailing, go catatonic for a bit after witnessing her death, then obsessively try to transform a random woman they meet on the street into her instead of going to therapy. Pretty much covers vertigo. Wait, doesn't he go to but therapy? But that's later. Doesn't he? Is, wait, isn't he? I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, he sort of gets forced, but okay. we never actually see him in therapy. And of course, Midge says it, it's not going to do him any good, Josh. So how dare you take apart my meme construct? <laughs> this might be well-trodden territory for you, Josh, but new ground for me, a guy who thinks he's only seen Rear Window once previously, and I can't even remember when. I don't have it logged. We've never really talked about it on the show. Well, it's basically men will literally spend 18 hours a day fixating on their neighbors instead of getting married. And what makes it even nuttier, the hottest anyone has ever looked on screen, you know, that meme, there's only two right answers, Paul Newman in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof or Grace Kelly in Rear Window. <laughs> the suspension of disbelief required by Rear Window, though, isn't so much about Jeff's utter disinterest in marrying Lisa. It's about what Lisa could possibly see in Jeff that would suggest he's the guy she should spend the rest of her life with. Let's be honest. It's tough to reconcile Kelly's regal beauty with Stewart's, I don't know, pedestrian handsomeness, especially the way Hitchcock and DP Robert Burks light and frame her, how Edith Head costumes her, how makeup supervisor Wally Westmore makes her up, and the beguiling combination of charm, humor, and poise that Kelly herself brings to Lisa. Well, Edith Head didn't break the budget on the old man pajamas worn throughout by Stuart, who 
was actually quite an old man at the time, at least relative to Kelly. At 46, he was almost twice her age, and his gray hair, maybe touched up a little by Westmore and his team, makes that impossible to overlook. But even setting aside the physical discrepancy, he shows her almost no affection, seeming more terrified of her sexuality than attracted to it. He's frequently callous and ignorant of her feelings, as we just heard in that clip. And his only goal seems to be, with a nod here again to Vertigo, to transform her into the woman he wants her to be, not the incredible woman she undeniably already is. How do you, Josh, the guy who loves watching the movie about the guy who loves watching, reconcile this? Do you look past it? Hey, Hollywood sometimes asks us to accept things that are a bit of a stretch. Just go with it. Or do you look through it? Lisa's stubbornness and perhaps even obsession with attaining something she can't and probably shouldn't intentionally mirrors Jeff's psychology. Far from a flaw, Lisa's foolish love for Jeff elevates already brilliant material from Hitchcock and writers John Michael Hayes and Cornell Woolrich adapting his own short story. What's your take, Josh? So, yeah, I get the sense you're presenting this as a bugaboo, and it's absolutely one of the delights. Not necessarily. Okay, okay I also good. Gave you, I gave you the answer to it as well. <laughs> I gave you the defense. Yeah, it's this is one of the things that didn't strike me anew. I've seen this, I don't even know how many times, but maybe it was most enjoyable on this watch of Rear Window, how well it works as a rom-com. This, this could absolutely be considered a rom-com as much as a thriller. And the one thing that can overlook, for the record, I don't see that as a bug. I see their relationship as a feature, as frustrating as it is, especially from her perspective. I'd agree with that. Um, but I absolutely think their chemistry alone between the two of them could overcome any problems, even if you saw it an issue. You know, as, as soon as they start talking together and that repartee begins, I really don't care what the age differences are. I really don't care who might be the wrong person for that relationship or how someone is treating the other person because there is that kernel of electricity that makes you believe why at one point they were together. And I think it's crucial that we're coming in on this relationship at a breaking point, at a clear, this is all set up in uh, Jeff's conversation before we even meet Lisa, right? With Stella, with the nurse mm-hmm. played wonderfully by Thelma Ritter. All he does is complain about Lisa <laughs> to to Stella, who is taking pretty much the, gives pretty much the argument you just gave, right? <laughs> it's like, she's, we, I don't even know what she's doing with you and you don't want to, yeah. you don't want to be with her. So this is all set up. And we're understanding that they are at this position in their relationship. Maybe it's one that Lisa does not want to admit yet, but you get the sense she fully understands. And the way this works as a rom-com is that exchange after he is horrible to her. He's so horrible to her that she calls the night off says, I'm leaving, and he starts to panic. It's This is a seesaw. You know, we're, we're essentially introduced to them as he doesn't want anything to do with her. When is she going to realize that? Because she'll be better off without him anyway, right? That's where we begin. And then it starts to seesaw the other way, precisely when she leaves and he, he panics, says, when am I going to see you again? Not for a long time, she says. And we're like, that's right. That's what you should say. Leave, leave this weirdo behind. <laughs> Pause. Not until tomorrow night. And the delivery of that is as good as, you know, any sort of screwball romance or or something you might get. (laughs) And so I just, I loved the dynamic that the two of them brought. Not that I didn't appreciate it before, but knowing all the thriller 
movements that this was going to make, all the revelations that are already in the back of my mind, it's maybe something that I appreciated anew that came to the forefront for me. Um, you know, little comic touches like her kissing him and and he just can't stop imagining what might have happened at the apartment across the way. Mm-hmm. And we're all thinking it. It's like, you fool. <laughs> yeah. Be in that moment. And this this film is so incredibly sensual as well, which, you know, you don't always get in a romantic comedy, but you absolutely have it here. Her Her first arrival, waking him up, and the filmmaking. I mean, most rom-coms could use this level of filmmaking. The decision to cut to that profile angle for her slow motion kiss of him, which is one of the most romantic, sensual moments in cinema, I would argue, along alongside anything up there with Wong Kar Wai has, has given us. And I'm so glad you mentioned Edith Head at the start here. You know, they discuss Lisa before she appears, as I said, and part of it is her presentation. Of course, it's what she looks like and her regalness. And, and you realize, man, first time watching this, someone's thinking, how is anyone going to how's anyone going to live up to this and then she comes through the door kisses him that way is wearing that incredible dress and the dresses mm-hmm. just keep getting better i mean my favorite might be the the final one she wears during the the climactic sleuthing when she's climbing through the window and has those patterns on it um so love that you started here with the relationship because it was maybe the thing i liked the most on this revisit and huh. and i'm i'm hoping i'm hoping that was more of a feature for you as well well, can I try to provide a nuanced response that might quibble with some of your details while not necessarily losing the big picture? I of mean, course. I think I think the repartee is is incredible, and I do love that dynamic with them. That's what I was kind of alluding to when I talked about Kelly's combination of charm and that sense of humor and that poise. It all combines to make you enjoy when they're in the room together. At the same time. I'm going to disagree a little bit in the sense that I felt like I I could use a little more electricity. I could have used a little more sensuality. It's so absent. Stuart seems so disinterested and apathetic about her advances that I, I wish I got a little more of it. And your rom-com example, actually, I think is kind of telling because the thing that makes them rom-coms, ultimately, yes, it's some of the things we've touched on here, but it's also that you really want them to be together. And in the end, they end up together. Now, maybe one person needs convincing. That's the conflict of rom-coms. But eventually, they come together. At no point, at no point did I, on this viewing, want Jeff and Lisa to end up married together. <laughs> never, never once. Because I, I just don't, I don't feel it between them. But that said, I don't feel it between them because it's such an ingrained part of the film. It's it's so crucial, I think, ultimately to what the movie is trying to do, trying to expose him as a as a very weak and also very foolish man, which Hitch does quite successfully here. But I think also getting back to what I said about it mirroring his psychology in some way, a, a fun little joke, and you expect these jokes from Hitchcock, but it's also very revealing of what the film's ultimately exploring the two moments where we see Jeff have to scratch an itch. It made me think about 
Actually, one of my favorite lines from a movie we gave the sacred cow treatment to not too long ago, Double Indemnity, another Hitchcock-like line from Wilder where he's he's being funny, though most people watching think it's a throwaway bit. And then you go, oh, that's kind of the movie in a nutshell. It's the the supermarket meeting between Barbara Stanwyck and Walter Neff. And a random woman says like, hey, could you grab that off the shelf for me because he's tall? And she says something like, I talked about this during our review too. She says something like, I don't understand why all the things I want are just out of my reach. That that's double indemnity, you know? Well here it's, it's that itch that you just absolutely have to scratch. And fortunately for him in those moments when he needs to scratch the itch, he's got the, he's got the thing, he's got the little tool and he successfully, he successfully does it. And the, Look on his face, Stewart's reaction to those moments. They're the closest things to sexual ecstasy we get in this film. You know, and, and <laughs> it's such a blatant metaphor, I think, for this, this idea that this movie is dealing with about what, what seems unattainable and that thing that you want and you get fixated on it and you'll do anything to relieve it. So the, the fact that he is so desperate to change her is so fundamental to the film. But the fact that she actually seems intent on changing him as well, getting him to be on board with her. As silly as that might seem for all the reasons I enumerated, I do think it's important to this script. Yeah, it's the friction. You need that friction. And, you know, if you were just rooting for them because they were a couple who seemed like they should end up together and there was an outside obstacle trying to keep them apart, that would be a standard rom-com. It's a Hitchcock rom-com if the man has some sort of psychological debilitation that none of us can understand that has to do with obsession, as you're saying, has to do with control, as you're saying, and that is the obstacle keeping them apart. And then, you know, we, we may vary on how much. I can't say one of my primary motivations in watching is that I wanted them to end up together either, but I do like that the movie circles around to a very rom-com ending with a punchline final shot of Lisa seemingly, yes, seemingly having acquiesced, although they are still in his apartment, forced to be Mm -hmm. there again. It's almost like there's a detente, right? His second injury Mm -hmm. has only made them pause this friction that they're going for. And all you get is a little hint of that they're still at this. Mm -hmm. And Lisa is playing some sort of long game because she's appearing to read, you know, the Kilimanjaro book or whatever it is that would be his interest, looks up, sees he's fallen asleep and puts it down to read. I think, what is it? Bizarre or something. Yeah, <laughs> so, bizarre. And and that makes sense. She's this fashion magnate, apparently, right? And but it's that she's still she, herself. She goes, it's that yeah, she's still herself. Exactly. Yes. She goes back to her, her comfort material there. And I do love that bit. And before that, I'll say, I think the shot of the movie... And this is saying something in Rear Window where there are a lot of great shots. I think the shot of the movie is the close-up of Jimmy Stewart's face when Lisa has come back in the apartment after risking her life. Yeah, yeah. He he there is so hot for her. It's only there. Hitchcock gives it to us. It's not that long, but it gives us just enough time to clock what he's thinking. It's not it's more than it's more than admiration. He's finally seeing the woman. And it's more than relief. He thinks he, he needs her to be. And it's more than relief. It's what he apparently or what he claims he needs her to be. He sees it in her and he finally has that 
response to it. I love that moment, but I do also love, as you said, the ending. I thought a lot about, I watched this one before Vertigo and there's going to be more Vertigo comparisons at some point. It might be when we get to Vertigo, but we also recently in the past year or two talked about Psycho and wow, there are a lot of Psycho comparisons and that's not news for anybody who knows Hitch's work really well. Of course, this is why he's an auteur, his fingerprints, his psychology is all over all of these films. But I actually even thought about that ending, Josh. And, and first, let me say, why was I thinking about Psycho at all? Well, how about how about the wheelchair? Jeff sitting in the chair, you know, just like even in the dark at the end made me think about Mama Bates and the the general sort of frailty and weakness in his character, both men in this case, both Norman and Jeff, and both are obsessive and they've got these rigidly defined worldviews that are challenged and they're both kept in line by women. So there's, there's a lot there, but I even saw that ending as, as almost, almost a psycho moment. The great reveal we get, right? Where we see that face, we, we hear about Norman Bates and then the, the skeleton underneath Right. The face underneath reveals, okay, and the smile, he's still he's still Norman Bates. Nothing's nothing's changing about this guy. And in a far less sinister and much more comical way, this is Hitch's little nod where he goes, Okay, just when you think maybe she's actually changed, he now is in love with her, his worldview is validated, and then She's changed for him, and she is legitimately now enamored by this adventurous life. Nope. Guess what? It's all a game. Yeah. It's all still a game. She hasn't changed at all, and she is still there in that moment, thankfully, I think, asserting her individuality rather than succumbing right. to him. Yeah, because no one wants the ending where she's totally changed and just given in to this jerk who's treated her horribly for two hours. But but I think there's a distinction between, you know, you have that early instinct of wanting her to just get away, leave him behind. And then as you see them interact together, I at least recognize the spark. There's there's more of a, okay, is there a way for them? Is there a way for them to figure this out is kind of where I landed. Real quickly to go back to your description of his close up. So many great close-ups of Stuart in this. Uh, you've mentioned a couple already because that's what he's mostly limited to do. A lot of conversations as well, but you know, when he's looking through the binoculars, when he's watching things out the window, and a lot of times there's no one else in the scene, he has to do all that work himself and he's just unreal. But that close-up, the reason, you know, as you were talking, it struck me that it also is so key is because this is the moment his obsessions come together. Yeah. His obsession with what's going on outside, his obsessions with adventure. And, you know, there is some level, maybe obsession is too strong, but still some level in interest in Lisa. That's why he panics mm -hmm. when she says she's leaving, right? In this moment, they all come together. And what does that mean? He thinks now he can, and this is what Vertigo to me is all about. He has control, right? Yeah. She's back in his control. The mystery has been solved slash controlled. Everything, I mean, the itch is gone in that, in that face, the itch is gone because he thinks he still has it all under control. And then, yeah, to go back to the ending, we get the little rug pulled out from under him uh, just to make us know, yeah, not, not so much, not so much. But yeah, let's talk about some other incredible shots. Uh, the one, you know, just the framing in general, this is an instance of, you know, Hitchcock putting himself in a box and then seeing how can he create his way out of it, right? Just restricting mm -hmm. the camera to the apartment, 
all the supporting players who don't come into the apartment are going to be seen through their windows and at that distance. We're never going to get a tool like a close-up. We're never going to get a tool. Sometimes we'll hear them talking and we catch a line or two of dialogue, but we're never going to get a tool to use like conversation to tell us. Um, and w- when I logged this, when I logged rear window on Letterboxd, I got a comment right away from uh, Tyson who said this about it. One of my all-time favorites. I think it's one of his best experiments. A lot of his other films with heavy limitations like The Birds or Rope bump against their limitations where this feels like it needed to be done this way. And yeah. I, I think that's a great way to put it, right? Is It's almost There's as no if it's it seems like a restriction to us, but actually this is how this story had to be told. And so you get it with some of this framing. How about the shot of the Thorwald's apartment? We can see the two windows in one shot. And so we see Lars in one room. I think it's when he takes the phone call and Mrs. Thorwald in bed in the right window. And just the decisions of when am I not going to use that, but just show you one of those windows? Or when am I going to pan from one window to the next instead of cut? What what does that tell you about the suspense of that moment, the intrigue of that moment? Even using the reflections of the buildings across the way in Jeff's binoculars, the lens, right? Or the telephoto lens, all this stuff of expanding outside of that box he put himself in and still coming up with these incredible shots, these incredible Mm -hmm. images, Thorwald's glowing cigarette, or maybe it's his cigar in the dark, maybe one of the most terrifying images in the suspense genre, because it's the moment, you know, he's watching too. Right. It's not just that it's it's visually creepy, dark and then this red glow, but it's what it tells you. It tells you that he's on that other side doing what Jeff's doing. And what now does that mean? So, yeah, we could we could probably go on and on with shots that that we love from this movie. Yeah, I'm going to go back to Raymond Burr and Thorwald for a second. If I said that the most sensual shot, the most electrifying shot in this film is that close up of Jimmy Stewart looking at Grace Kelly. Well, I'll say that. One of the most terrifying shots in cinema history. I'm with you on the the cigar and the glow. I'll get to that in a second. But honestly, it's when it's when Thorwald finally does look back. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. When he sees Jeff, when he sees us, the only thing I can liken it to is the similar shot that's also as terrifying in Blue Velvet. When I think about Dennis Hopper, Frank Booth near the end, looking up the stairs and seeing us, seeing Jeffrey Beaumont in that case. And you just, you watching it want to slink back in your chair or move in some way. So like he doesn't see you. And it's the same thing there. It's the same reaction that Jeff has, but that's only achieved through the amazing formal achievement that this movie is. And it goes back to the very beginning of the film. Having not seen this film in a long time, but knowing what happens and knowing what it's about, I assumed as that camera dots around the courtyard and introduces us to every character and all their little idiosyncrasies and their defining traits, I was sure the way the camera was moving that it was Jeff's point of view, Mm. that the camera was reflecting his eyes as he was doing what he does throughout the movie and then we we cut and we get this mirrored at the end too then we cut or we we enter we widen to see in jeff's room that he's in his wheelchair and he's got his back to the window yeah so instantly it's hitchcock saying 
you're going to be allowed to see some things that Jeff isn't looking at. Mm -hmm. Occasionally, I'm going to show you that. But for the most part, it's going to be from his point of view. But you'll get a sneak a peek every now and again. But also, you're no different than him. Yes, that's it. That's (laughs) it. And here's another point, too. I don't think Hitchcock is any different than him. I do think that element is there. Maybe we can get to that. But he's saying, no, it's you. Those are your eyes Uh peering around the courtyard, looking in, judging everyone or being titillated by Miss Torso or whatever it is. And that that is a brilliant touch to not immediately align us with Jeff the way for most of the film we are going to be. But again, we we have that reaction to Thorwald finally, you know, breaking the fourth wall, right? Because of that incredible identification and the fact that we never we never leave that room, that box, that literal box that we're in this entire film. And it's not just, here's where the Hitchcock part, of course, comes in. It's not just that we see the world almost exclusively through his eyes. Sometimes it's through his eyes through a lens. And the, the window that he's looking through, of course, is like a movie screen, opening up this entirely new universe populated by characters. Yeah, that's how it begins, trying, right? Or, the shades yeah, go up. That's it. Yeah, that we're trying to make sense of, right? The curtain goes up. And and then here's the part, of course, I love. I really love the fact that this universe, this movie universe unto the movie itself is even scored. Yeah. <laughs> it has its own built-in sound. The fact that all of the movie world sound emanates from within. It's all diegetic and it's really fun. One of the things I would do if I had time to watch this movie again, the immediate thing I would do is I would go back to those parts and there are key moments where the score, in this case, the sound that's emanating from that composer's apartment, I would I would note all the points where that score seems to clash with and is dissonant actually Mm. with what's happening on screen. So it's adding textures and making us think about that clash as opposed to it being a perfect kind of one-to-one match where it's a thrilling moment and we get thrilling music. That's not how the music is really used here at all. There's some really fun uh, contradictions. But the last thing I want to say on this, Josh, and the formalism and going back to where I started with Burr is that that shot, again, you're so right, so creepy those two times i think at least where we see the cigar in the dark i love that it also suggests or at least suggested to me this time that he's an alternate version of jeff right he's just the darker bizarro jeff who has actually gone too far who has actually snapped because of his quote-unquote nagging wife, as opposed to being the guy who's just afraid Mm -hmm. of occasionally, deathly afraid of occasionally snapping because of his nagging wife. As he he says in the film, he literally verbalizes. Who knows what he's actually looking at on the other end? But at night, he's clearly just sitting there in the dark. And that image is so memorable and and so, so sinister. But again, it's another mirror. It's another mirror to Jeff, what he's doing on the other side. And as you pointed out, then to us as well, implicating Mm -hmm. us because we have that association with Jeff. And that's, you know, that is what makes this so Hitchcock is this element of guilt that comes into it. And the reason, you know, the, the film nerd reason why you make the argument this is the greatest movie of all time is the one you've already touched on that it is about the act of watching movies, right? This is the sort of stuff that critics love, Uh, but it does, it does it 
fairly deftly, I think. You yes. know, we, we don't I actually yeah. We don't have Jeff being a movie director. We you know, no. or, or something like that. Now maybe that's that's what I had in my notes. Yeah, yeah maybe okay. maybe I that doesn't push back. Maybe it doesn't make as big of a distinction, but to me it's kind of a crucial one. Is it's like it's just one step away that makes yeah. it a little less, I guess one-to-one or pretentious or, or whatever. But, th- but okay. this is interesting because, you know, it's not just about the act of watching movies, but our guilt over that in one way or another. And we have so many movies we can watch out that window that our guilt can be diluted in many ways. Maybe it is, as you said, the leering guilt with Miss Torso. Um, maybe it is, you know, guilt over Miss Lonely Hearts and her predicament. And I mean, that is every time I watch this, this is a, a detail that I forgot. Mm-hmm. And then I realize how horrible it is. <laughs> yeah. That he that shows us her at one point and they're just sidetracked. They are so sidetracked. It looks business. as if she's yeah. about to take her own yeah. life. And and they note that the three of mm-hmm. them, you know, Lisa, Stella, and Jeff, all note that. But at the same time, something's going on with with Thorwald, so they're watching him too. And the quickness, which with they just willingly, it seems like, set aside Miss Lonely Heart's predicament and stick to plot A. Let's say, yeah, yeah. And, and what that you know, we're kind of tugged, like, well, what about Miss Lonely Hearts? Because we have that degree of separation, but yes. are we always? Are, are we always that willing to look at what we should be looking at no. instead of what we want to look at? Um, I think this is the key to the speech that the woman with a dog gives after her. she discovers her dead dog. She comes out on her balcony and starts berating all the neighbors, mm-hmm. um, essentially for being watchers and not being right. communal. That's her point, right? Is is you're not really neighbors. She says something like that. And and think about, you know, it's a variation on what Stella says at the beginning. We become a race of peeping toms. Now she becomes quite involved in that <laughs> the peeping. Yeah. But but this is an extension of that. And I mean, Stella had no idea what was coming. I mean, think about think about us now, how we live. We're watching others, not through our windows, not even through our TVs at home. We're watching others on our phones when we're outside among people. Rather than relating to the people among us, I mean, we've all we've all done this. It's an extension of what is being indicted playfully here by Hitchcock. Hitchcock is always implicating himself to your earlier point in these sorts of ruminations. But yeah, I think that indictment is so piercing, especially that moment where they they don't really consider intervening at first with Miss Lonely Hearts. And then the music, to speaking to your point about the music coming in as a character from the mm-hmm. composer next door, distracts her. Yes. And so they note that. And, and you know, I think Jeff says something like, Stella was wrong about her. Like, she wasn't going to do it anyway, you know? And, and it's like it's like they've got a soap opera on the second TV in their room that they're just half watching. That's it. And it's this woman's yeah. life. Yeah. Well, if you go a little bit deeper with it or even look at it from another perspective, Josh, everything you said is dead on. But also... In the case of Miss Lonely Hearts, they could actually save her. Yes, they could. They could could prevent her from dying. I hate to be, you know, kind of vulgar about it, but Miss Thorwald is already dead. Like, I'm not saying it's not important to catch a murderer, but at this point, it is the... The more thrilling one, the more titillating one, the the more adventurous one. 
exactly, that obsesses them. It is that soap opera on the other channel, in this case, in the other window. We would all get caught up in that. Hitchcock, at least here in this moment, directs our eye and doesn't allow us to forget about Miss Lonely Heart. But otherwise, we would we would absolutely do, I think, most of us what they do. And they could actually save her. That's the tremendous irony of it. So to go back to your to your point about Hitchcock here, I, I did want to push back on this, or I wanted to at least push this, I guess I should say with you. I wanted to understand because I did think, Josh, that perhaps an element of why you, a film critic, someone who is devoted now most of his life to studying film and thinking about film, writing about film, talking about film, it would make sense that you'd have kind of a cinephile answer to your favorite movie of all time, Rear Window. Except, unlike me, the one who is fine being outwardly pretentious and embracing the <laughs> movies that are blatantly about movies, the more meta movies, you don't as easily embrace those kinds of films. And so watching it, a couple days ago and taking my notes, I thought it's kind of funny, actually, that this is Josh's choice for that for that very reason. So I, I did want to get a little bit of an answer from you on why that was. And I think you addressed it. And I wrote this in my notes. It's a movie about movies without having anything to do with Hollywood. Yeah, that's definitely and, part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so we get all these fun meta layers where. He is, as I said earlier, he's someone who is often looking at the world through a lens. And so. There again, I think part of this is part of what's inherent to Jeff's character, and this is true of a lot of people who for a living do what he does or for a living shoot film and are documentary filmmakers, especially many films deal with this, is this notion that the the lens becomes this thing that allows them to detach a little bit from the world, even when it's right in front of them. Even when harrowing things are happening right in front of them, they tend to see people as characters through that lens rather than real people. And sometimes they're not even aware of the threat to themselves. You have that aspect to the film, but then also maybe the most meta moment, blatantly meta moment in this film is when, is it, is it Lisa? I think it's Grace Kelly, not, not Thelma Ritter who says it, but she says something like, I don't know about rear window ethics. Yeah. How many, how many papers, how many essays about this film have been titled, rear window uh -huh. but you know who else well this isn't fair to say because i think you're right i think there are ways that hitchcock is implicating us and very definitely implicating himself so i i don't really mean this but i think what he's wrestling with if i'm going to be so bold as to try to understand hitchcock's psychology and we are coming at this having not we don't come at these reviews from the standpoint of research we're we're just trying to reckon with the experience we had and what we know from Hitchcock's work and maybe what we've picked up along the way but to some extent Hitchcock also doesn't really care about rear window ethics he he cares about the story he's telling he cares about what he can what he can make these characters do the reaction it gets from him the reaction it gets from his audience and i do think he's he's investigating that that impulse that's it in himself yeah. i do think he is doing that but he's acknowledging that his impulse his instinct is to just have all the kind of vulgar fun he wants with all these toys that he has at his disposal and what he wants to do is he wants to put us in those positions yes where we're forced to wrestle with our desires if you will and he's perfectly content to be the guy who's making us do the wrestling, whether or not he does any wrestling is really beside the point.
absolutely what it feels like to me. He's poking rear window ethics. That's that's his concern um, is is to poke them, stir it up and see what happens, see how we react. Yeah, your you know, your thought on why I like this meta movie is dead on. It's the it's a couple it's two things I would add real quickly. It's the deafness of the meta-ness, which we don't always get. And then a key distinction for me is it is about movies, but it's about watching movies, not making movies. And maybe that's just a relatability thing. Um, you know, n- not really being familiar with that side of of filmmaking, but being very familiar with film watching <laughs> since I can remember watching anything and then thinking seriously about it. So that kind of kind of hits me uh, in a deeper spot. I wanted to ask you a question, and it has to do with these supporting characters, which we should mention a couple uh, of the performers here. So Miss Torso, played by Georgine Darcy, and uh, Miss Lonely Hearts, played by Judith Evelyn. I think we probably mentioned the two of them the most, but there are many other characters, as we've suggested. So do you, we've talked about this as its own movie, its own show, of all those subplots going on outside the window is there a movie version of one of those you want to see do you want to see miss lonely hearts whole story do you want to see miss torso's whole story if you had to pick is there one you think kind of jumps out that's a really good question that i do not have a great answer for josh but i think maybe what i'll tie it back to is i do love the way hitchcock sets up the crux of this film and the crux of Jimmy Stewart's dilemma and this great anxiety over Lisa and getting married. And then every time he looks out at those different stories, he's seeing basically different stages of relationships yeah, and different stages of marriages. And so he's seeing potentially the arc of his life and the paths that he could take. Mm-hmm. It's all being here again, I'll say mirrored back to him. And so that one, I don't know that they are here. Here's where I'm going to get back to try to answer your question. I don't know if they're the one I actually would want to see the movie of, but I love their inclusion in the film for what it says about Jeff. And it's the newlyweds. Yes. <laughs> the newlyweds, because <laughs> he's so reticent about marriage. And I'm going to say, <laughs> this is, this is not fair, but I don't know. I don't know what else may not be working on Jeff besides his leg, but he really, he really is scared of sex as I watch this film. He, he is certainly slightly into what he sees from Miss Torso. We see him once or twice glance back. Yeah. But he's not taking any long looks. He's not like Doyle, the detective yes, who, no. <laughs> you know, can't stop looking. Right. And, and he keeps telling him, be that, careful, be careful. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I, I love when he says that to him twice as he looks at the bag and sees her pajamas. Yeah. Be careful, Doyle. Be careful, Doyle. So he's not like him. He's incredibly afraid of sex. He's incredibly afraid of marriage. And so what does he see? the newlywed couple come in, the newlyweds that he could be, except he's not. On one hand, he's not that young, virile man. Not only is he right now unable to lift anything, but even if he got out of his wheelchair, he's not the guy that's going to go back and carry her across the threshold like the conventional manly man. And then their window shade, Josh, is shut almost the entire film, right? So we know what they're doing. And she's constantly calling him back to service. Yes. Mirroring his great fear. <laughs> Anxi- his his great anxiety, fears, yeah. His anxiety is, oh my gosh, what if, what if 
that's what is expected of me. And all all I'm forced to do is is constantly have sex with Grace Kelly. Who yeah? Who, who wants that? Right. Get me right. out of here. Misery, misery <laughs> for for this guy. So that's where I'm going to go again. I, like I don't it. know if I want to see that movie, but I I do love the the part that they play in this film. And then of course, what happens finally when they do emerge? <laughs> Just another case of a quote-unquote nagging wife mm-hmm. to see. It, mm-hmm. it does play out the way Jeff fears yeah. that it will play out. The way the way even some of the other relationships there, not only Thorwald being nagged and then, I won't say being driven to murder because it certainly is not justified, but being nagged by his wife and snapping. And then we've got that other couple, even though they seem fairly happy, they also, you know, sleeping out on the mm-hmm. on the fire escape they they seem to have their own little issues at times you know so it's always it's always shown back to him what what marriage could be and sometimes it supports exactly what he fears it will be and other times i think it's even an amplified version of what he's terrified about i'm glad you brought up the newlyweds it's such a great touch and and he has another wonderful facial reaction close up to them when i think someone asks about what's going on behind that you know, that window because it's pulled down and he just kind of, you know, kind of smiles and, and raises his eyebrows a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think my I, I have an answer to my own question that I don't want to say because some producer is going to is probably going to actually make this into a horrible it's that good. streaming series. Would you be curious in something called the Thorwalds and you actually get <laughs> in there because I, I am. Yeah. If Raymond Burr is playing Thorwald. Well, oh, of course, of course. Yeah. But you do wonder what sort of, there's just enough like deviousness to mm-hmm. Mrs. Thorwald, who we hardly see at all. And you wonder what is going on between them. Not that anything, of course, would justify, but you do wonder. He makes that phone call. And I think you can almost see her smile if I'm if I'm like she caught him or something and then she gets out of bed. I don't know. There there are many layers of of uh, complexity going on with the Thorwald. So so maybe it'd be that one for me. Well, and also, I think this fits so nicely with everything we're saying about the The folly, I'm going to use the word folly of Jeff, how wrong he is about most things, even though he's the man that is ostensibly he's supposed to be our hero. And the way Hitchcock just constantly undercuts that, it's really telling that not only does Lisa tell him that he's wrong about Miss Torso, but ultimately the film tells us. That he's wrong. Oh, that's about a great joke too. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. You know what? I got to be honest. Something about the on the noseness of she's actually in love with this, you know, <laughs> little guy with his glasses. Come on, that's that's the sitcom uh, on the channel. You, you flip I, to I the switch to the sitcom yeah, when you go you're there. Right. You're right. That joke didn't necessarily land for me, but the fact, but you really have to look at it. You have to think about. You have to think about Jeff's view of masculinity here and the fact that when he sees Miss Torso, just because of the way she's moving, the way she's dressed, of course, she's not thinking about being watched. She's not putting on a show for him, but he sort of sees it that way and immediately reads her as a woman who is conniving. Mm. He immediately reads her as a woman who is juggling men, trying to keep all the balls in the air and get what she wants. And it's, of course, Lisa that says, no, actually, it's it's the opposite. You know, she's she's not the queen bee. 
you know, at all here. What is what is her line? She has a great line, and I I thought I wrote it down, but I didn't. She has a great line that sums up what she sees yeah. her as doing, which is being much more on the defensive, keeping these men away as opposed to trying to keep them, you know, all in play. And then, of course, at the end, we see actually she's really been waiting for her true love, <laughs> validating what what Lisa says. Yeah. But but it tells you how Jeff sees the world and how Jeff sees women, mm-hmm. that that's immediately how he reads Miss Torso. And I think that exchange is one of the reasons that I, I'm so invested in their relationship is to see Lisa so quickly give it back to him and set him straight. And that's part of the, the back and forth that I think, you know, at least to me, there's something there. There's something there between them that she can call him out like that, as different as they might seem to be, as poorly as he treats her, um, until she again calls him on that. Um, that makes me, yeah, just kind of kind of love them as a couple. Well, at least that's something you'll never have to worry about. Oh, you can see my apartment from here all the way up on 63rd Street? No, not exactly, but we have a little apartment here that's probably about as popular as yours. You remember, of course, Miss Torso, the ballet dancer? She's like a queen bee with her pick of the drones. I'd say she's doing a woman's hardest job, juggling wolves. Well, she picked the most prosperous looking one. She's not in love with him, or any of them. Uh, how can you tell that from here? You said it resembled my apartment, didn't you? I, I do want to at least end on this talk about the ending and see if you can you can make me appreciate it more the ending here feels very rushed to me now i like i do like going back to everything we were saying about the meta elements of course i love the fact that this movie is so tied to the mechanism of movie making of viewing that he uses the flash bulbs the equipment his weapon yeah as as his weapon even if it is undeniably unintentionally hilarious that Jimmy Stewart knows every time to cover his eyes, but Raymond Burr can't figure it out. Yeah, he's a little like, slow Thorwald on that. just keeps walking <laughs> towards it like an oaf, never once blocks his eyes, and, and he just keeps moving towards him. But I do, I do like that part. But uh, something about once things intensify and how quickly the people come out, I'm going to talk about that hear a little bit more, but all the people come out as he's dangling. And there's this odd moment where, where Doyle shouts to a cop to give him a gun and he points it. And then one second later, cops are on the balcony. It, it, it did feel to me a little, a little bit clunky. And now to go to that point about all the people you talked about that little speech that the, that the woman gives when the dog dies, I was thinking the whole time watching that I was thinking about and, and a movie was made about this a few years ago, the documentary. We talked about it here on the show. I think it was a Golden Brick nominee. I, I spoke to the director, The Witness. And it was this exploration, this, this chronicle of the famous Kitty Genovese murder in New York that, that so many psychology studies have been written about. The story, supposedly, of a woman basically murdered out in the open, screaming for help in New York City, and... Nobody does anything. And the takeaway from that is, well, everybody in the city, you live in a city, you're surrounded by people, you assume someone else is going to solve that problem, and you also don't want to get involved, and that happens. I was thinking almost like Hitchcock was kind of riffing on that, Josh, and that murder actually happened 10 years later. It happened in 1964 in New York, so he definitely wasn't at least directly 
referencing that, but the the only explanation for everybody rushing out when he's getting attacked, it seems to me is it's a it's an answer to or it's it's tied directly to that speech and the fact that no one no one sees the dog, but when he's under attack, everybody comes rushing out. And I didn't I I, I didn't really understand the point necessarily that Hitchcock was trying to make there. And I also wrote wrote in my notes, maybe you maybe you have a, a take on it. But I wrote this down and then I watched Vertigo and I went back to my rear window notes and I read this and I went, wait a second, what movie? Honestly, what movie am I talking about? Did I mix my notes up? I wrote in my notes, is it possible that when he's dangling, it's almost like he's so solipsistic. Is it almost like as he's dangling and he's fearing his death, he's fantasizing that as he's about to die, everybody comes to watch and wants to help him? Hmm. I mean, I suppose I honestly didn't feel necessity for a deeper justification. I, I've never really thought that this ending was rushed or awkward. Um, you know, raising those concerns, I my impression is people come out because at this point there are maybe a dozen police officers running throughout the compound. They've already had the altercation or the confrontation with Lisa and Thorwald in his apartment, right? That brought a yeah. handful of cops. So, so the alarm has sort of already been raised within this sure. courtyard. Um, I, as you were talking though, what I do think is interesting, I wonder if there is some sort of formal or thematic reasoning behind it is that moment with the gun, because it's one of the few moments we're outside of the room. We're, we're looking back at Jeff's apartment at the window and there's a practical mm -hmm. reason to see him yeah. hanging there. Right. But, um, just just the decision to make a break there, possibly for the first time. Maybe we also break when Lisa and Stella are climbing the ladder to get to Thorwald's apartment. That might be outside. But I don't know. That might be the first break. And it'd be interesting to track that as well and yeah. see. But I yeah, I, I don't so, know. It's so clearly thematically ties to that speech. If that speech wasn't there, them Hitchcock making such a concerted effort to showcase every single. Yeah, they're all coming out. out. Right, right. It, Otherwise, I wouldn't have thought of it. It would have just been, oh, there's a lot of noise and commotion. People are coming out. Yeah. It seems like he's trying to make a larger point with that moment. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe they've been put on the note. They've been put on notice by her. So now if there's yeah. any sort of yeah. disturbance, um, they are going to maybe take that extra it. step that's and, what he and actually respond. Could be. Hmm. Such a rich text. We could talk probably another 45 or 50 minutes, but we have another Hitchcock movie to talk about Josh, we're going to stop there. Rear Window is currently available VOD and streaming on the Criterion channel. It's also on DVD and Blu-ray or look for it at your local library. Get it via interlibrary loan. Sam and Josh love to go that route. If you see the film or you've seen it, maybe multiple times like Josh, maybe only the second time like me, and you agree or disagree with our thoughts, email us feedback at filmspotting.net. We've got a couple of ways you could help the show, if you don't mind, if you're a regular listener or, you know, if you're just still getting to know us, would you mind taking a minute and giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify? Every time we get one of these, it does help us reach new listeners. Of course, another way to support us is to join the Film Spotting family. Easy to do that at filmspottingfamily.com. We want to welcome new family member, Lockie Simpson, who's all the way in Melbourne, Australia. 
Locky has been listening since at least 2013. He says, he writes, that was when I was a young engineering student taking every film elective that they'd let me. Might have been the Pulp Fiction Sacred Cow is an early one that kept me coming back. Favorite all-time review or segment on the show, though, Josh, and we get this a lot, the Raiders review featuring Michael Phillips, the oh, contrarian. That, that one was a doozy, to yep. use a Michael word. <laughs> Uh huh. <laughs> a favorite movie he recently revisited, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Top tier Fincher for me, he says. And, you know, that's one I, I want to say here on the show, I might have given it three stars out of five, a, a mild recommendation. I, I just remember for someone who loves Fincher being kind of mixed on it. And it is absolutely one of those films, Josh, it feels to me like if it came on right now and I started watching it, I'd be like, this is so good. What was five what out of was five? Problem five out of yeah. five. Five out of five. Of course, it's great. The movie he credits with him becoming a cinephile. I watched Citizen Kane when I was 20 or so and found it so damn entertaining. Unlock classic Hollywood cinema for me is something that could be a good old time to watch, not just homework. Yes, thank you, Lockie, and welcome to the family. I think Lockie made a great argument there for Rear Window as being a great. It's pretty damn entertaining itself. Yes, it is. In addition to keeping us doing what we're doing, your support comes with perks. You get to listen early and ad-free. You get the weekly newsletter. You get monthly bonus shows. You get exclusive opportunities. Coming later this month, we're going to have our Film Spotting Advisory Board. That's the top family tier advisory board meeting. That's where me, you, producer Sam, get on a Zoom call with the family advisory board members, kick around show business and things that we need expert opinions and advice on. And in February, as we do in February, we're going to give them the exclusive sneak peek at the Film Spotting Madness lineup. Maybe if we're wrestling with some final seating, some decisions about what will make the cut or not, we're going to go to them. We'll let them weigh in. That's always fun. That's kind of giving them a leg up on their brackets, isn't it? I mean, I, I guess, you know, they'll Maybe. get their they'll get of their money's worth, to do. right? <laughs> of what to avoid if if these are Adam's top seeds. There you go. Ignore everything he says. We will have that call. That audio will be available as a bonus show to all family members. And then in March, it is the return of Trivia Spotting, an exclusive opportunity for family members to participate in a round of trivia with us and other family members. It'll be a good time. You also get complete archive access. So, you know, if you've thought about it for a while, it's a new year, you're thinking about the content in your life that's really important to you, maybe maybe Josh, it's film spotting. And you know what? We've never said this before, and I've been meaning to say this for some time, or it's always occurred to me, maybe we'll save it, or we'll get into it more, I should say, when we devote more time to talking about the family. But I'm going to say this. We're legitimately not begging for anyone's money, okay? But we... We should acknowledge, I think sometimes people go, oh man, they're, they're a WBEZ radio show. They've been on public radio, like so many big podcasts now for 15 years, over 15 years. They probably get compensated for that. <laughs> they probably are just raking in the podcast dollars. We love WBEZ. We've had an amazing partnership with them, but it is just that. It's a partnership, and it's one that involves different things that we exchange none of which includes any dollars. <laughs> we're not we're not receiving money from from any NPR stations. We are an absolutely independently produced show and always have been. And when we say that your family support keeps us doing what we're doing, it's 100% true. So, if that moves you at all, filmspottingfamily.com. Why?
Tức đi là gì vậy chú? Ở lớp học Con có bao giờ cho bạn mượn đồ chơi chưa? Chết rồi That's some of the trailer for the new Inside the Yellow Cocoon Shell, which is currently playing in limited release. It's the feature directing debut from Fam Tin An and won Fam the Camera Door Award for his best first feature at the 2023 Cannes Film Festival. Josh, I hear best first feature and I'm thinking we have potentially our first nominee for the 2024 Brick Door, which is what we're going to change the name of the Golden Brick Award to. Ah, I, think. I see. It just, it just sounds classier more european obviously are you putting it in the mix i mean i'm putting it in this in the mix and it it would push every one of last year's bricks which were all good films to the brink i was flabbergasted by this experience and and i was telling you and sam when we were able to get together this weekend i think it's the first movie i saw in a theater in a couple of weeks it might have been that i was just starving for a big screen experience and i wish it was playing in more theaters because it absolutely deserves one this is a slow meditative um viewing experience where everything in the wide frame matters fam is taking such care and this is why it's also up for Golden Brick, not just because it's a debut feature, but because of the astonishing amount of formal control that he's exhibiting here. Um, such care to every element of the screen, the opening sequence, the opening shot, I should say, I'm not sure exactly how long it runs, maybe 10 minutes, uh, is an unbroken take that just slowly tracks. It's set at a soccer match in Saigon, and uh, it slowly tracks from a bystander and a mascot watching the game along to the concessions area, in on these three characters, one of whom becomes the main character, listens to their conversation, but you have all this hullabaloo going on in the background. And what it does, it's not only visually interesting, but it sets up the remarkable accomplishment of this movie, which is being about... I mean, it sounds grandiose, but it's about life itself because you have all of these mundane things going on that are kind of comical. The mascot looks a little janky and the bystander is kind of gyrating his hips in a strange way. Then you go over to concessions and you have, you know, a woman selling beer and fans cheering in the background, just everyday life. And then you realize these three young men are having the most serious conversation you can imagine about eternity. And they're asking, one of them is about to go on a spiritual pilgrimage. The other one says, why in this day and age are you are you still bothering with such superstition? And then we have this third guy um, who, Tin, played by Lei Fong Vu, becomes the main character, who, who says when he's pushed, the existence of faith is ambiguous. And so this is all going on together. And then, and this doesn't spoil anything, it really sets up what is to come, we hear off screen rain mysteriously begins to fall quickly. Just before this, we hear off screen a screech, a crash. The camera very slowly pans over to the road and there's been a motorbike accident. We see two mangled bikes. We see three bodies, uh, a man, a woman, and we see the body of a child. And all this, it's just, it's like everything. It's comedy, it's tragedy. And this is just the first eight minutes or so. And it's these three people trying to figure out what it all means. And that probably makes it sound pretentious, but I'm telling you there are little bits of humor like that mascot peppered throughout the following almost three hours we get. This is a very long film. Uh, as Tin goes on what is essentially a spiritual awakening journey, and he's pushed this way by a plot development where 
Uh, he learns that his sister-in-law has died, and he is going to be responsible for the care of his very young nephew, uh, probably around maybe four years old, something like that. His brother, the father and husband, has left the family years ago, so this nephew has no one else. Tin takes him in, brings him to his mother's funeral, the burial, all of these rites of passage, and cares for him and struggles with what it all means for himself, for this kid, for all of us, really. And that's as much as I want to say about plot. Um, I think, you know, what I would say in terms of describing it and points of comparison for people, whether they want to even take this on, is I was writing my review of this and I, I wrote something like, you know, these developments forced him to confront his own existential anxieties. And, and then I paused and was thought, that's not exactly it. It's like the existential confronts him. This is a movie that Adam is similar to something like Tarkovsky's The Mirror, which we talked about in the last year or so. I also thought of the films of A Pichapong Rastakun, uh, Uncle Boon Mi, Can Recall His Past Lives, Cemetery of Splendor. Just these majestic meditations on something beyond the veil that is just pushing pushing against human understanding um, and characters experiencing that in such tactile, cinematic ways. And that's what this rest of the film proceeds to be. It was mesmerizing to me. Um, it's a challenging watch. It's what I would call a body rhythm film. Make sure you're awake, you're alert. If you can go see it in a theater so you have the people around you chuckling when you realize, yeah, this is kind of funny, as serious as it is, and, and gasping. There's a miracle moment. I'm not going to spoil. Last thing I'll say, and I promise I'm wrapping up, but um, Tin performs magic tricks for his nephew to kind of keep him entertained. And there's a miracle moment where a, after he performs a trick, a trick gets played on him. And, and the movie doesn't overplay that either. It's just this gentle, you have to be watching so closely to even realize that it happened. So I'm so excited about I mean, this movie just got me excited about 2024 in film overall. We, we did our preview. There's a lot of great stuff coming ahead. But I went to this and sat there and was like, yes, yes, this is this is what it's all about. So really glad to open the the golden brick gate with Inside the Yellow Cocoon Shell. Needless to say, you have sold me on Inside the Yellow Cocoon Shell. Can't wait to see it. If I get a chance here in Iowa City, I got to beg my beloved film scene to get it on its Pull some strings. calendar. Pull some strings. Yeah, make sure, make sure Ben Delgado makes that happen because I'm not sure it's coming. Maybe he's already arranged it and I just have to do my homework, but I now cannot wait to see it. It's currently playing in very limited release, but a DVD, according to Sam, a DVD and a digital release are scheduled for March. So maybe... Maybe that's it. Maybe I just need to wait about a month or so, Josh, to keep track of the 2024 Golden Brick. Visit filmspotting.net slash bricks. Next week here on the show, we're planning to get to Vim Vendors and one of his latest, Perfect Days, just nominated for a Best International Film Oscar. That film also playing in limited release. We may do a top five pairing with that as well. Two weeks from now, we're getting a new film from one half of the Coen brothers, Ethan Cohn's Drive Away Dolls. The new deeply flawed, deeply infuriating <laughs> film spotting poll asks about the Coen brothers. As if I didn't have enough stress, Josh, in having to pick between Rear Window and Vertigo, Sam comes up with this poll question. Have you looked at this and looked at the options yet? 
So this is a case where I saw this pop up on Slack and was actually grateful I had a nightmare busy day because there's yeah. no way I could have comprehended it. So I was like, okay, don't have time for that. I know it's going to come back to bite me when we're actually recording, but no, I'm not thinking about that now. Just wait for this. Just wait for this. Sam, the evil man that he is, is only going to let us keep a single decade of the Coen Brothers filmography. But since the Coen Brothers didn't release their first film until the mid-80s, Blood Simple, 85, we're going to approach it a little differently in terms of how we're defining decades. So it's not 80 to 89, 90 to 99, and so on. No, this is a film spotting poll question. It's 85 to 95. This I did not note. <laughs> 96 to 06. Oh my goodness. And 07 to 17. Now that's fine. That's not the infuriating part, obviously. It's now having to consider these decades in terms of these films, the films that were released in these spans. And it's six films each, except for 85 to 95, the first decade, where it's five films. So each of the last two do have one more movie, but that doesn't really make it problematic. It's just having to choose between these films, these sets of films, Josh. Give them the options. Okay, I'm glad Sam did this work for us. 85 to 95, that includes Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, Barton Fink, and Hudsucker Proxy. Looking at 96 to 06, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, The Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers, and... No, just in case you thought, well, no country is coming. So so that makes this an easy choice to go with that decade. Nope. No country is in the next batch. 07 to 2017. No country for old men. Burn after reading. A serious man. True grit. Inside Lewin Davis. Hail Caesar. And Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's absurd because you take the first decade. And I know we don't quite see eye to eye on all of these films and how we rank the cones. So we're going to come at this a little bit of a different way, but I can definitely make a case, Josh, for all three decades. Oh, for sure. 85 to 95. I don't love the Hudsucker proxy and I do really like blood simple, but you've got three films. If I just go off of, forget the ranking. I just go off of like, what do I consider top tier elite Cone brothers films? I've got three of them there in Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, and Barton Fink. Three out of five. That's pretty good. Then you go to 95, 96 to 06, I should say, and you've got two of the big ones, maybe the two biggest ones that I love. Definitely elite cone films, Fargo and The Big Lebowski, for me. But then you've also got two films I definitely need to rewatch, like, but need to rewatch, You've got one that's my lowest ranked Coen Brothers film in Intolerable Cruelty, and you've got one. Maybe that's it. I'm, I get to abstain. I get to abstain. I don't have to answer because I've never seen The Lady Killers, mm. actually. Yeah. So I'm not a completist. You got to wait. But, but there, I, as much as I love Fargo and Lebowski, that's only two for me elite cones there. And then you go to the last decade, No Country, elite, Inside Lewin Davis, elite, and I think I would put a serious man up there as well. So that's three for me. And I also really like True Grit and Hail Caesar. If Ballad of Buster Scruggs counted, if Sam went into 18, well, then that that might put that one over the top. So I think it comes down to 85 to 95 or 07 to 17. And 
<laughs> How do I decide what world I want to live in? A world that has Raising Arizona, Miller's Crossing, and Barton Fink, or a world that has no country for old men inside Lewin Davis and a serious man? There's no good answer. I mean, there, I don't you know, want to choose. I, I don't want to choose. I have. I'm mad. I have different films making me feel in the same place as you are, (laughs) of course. Um, But I'm going to I'm going to have to abstain and get back to this next time. We maybe we discuss the results. I'll have to consult my letterbox ranking. See if that helps me. I mean, I'm I'm looking at the first batch. (laughs) Miller's Crossing still stands as my favorite film of theirs. Uh, Looking at the second batch. And yeah, you do have something like Fargo, that that marking point, I think, in their career. And I, I love O Brother. I love O Brothers so much. I think the man who wasn't there is incredibly underrated. And then you look at the last batch and, as you said, no country at the pinnacle for them. I'm a huge fan of Hail Caesar. I think it was my favorite film of that year and also think that True Grit is incredible. So, yeah, different titles are making this difficult for me, but it is it is still quite the challenge. I'm going to look at that ranking and, and see if see if an answer presents itself. OK, well, you know what? I'm I'm going to go for it. And I may change my mind an hour from now or a day from now or a week from now. But right now, I'm going to say 07 to 17. I'm going to go No Country, Lewin Davis, and A Serious Man as the three that make that the choice for me. Can't can't live without those movies. They've Josh. only gotten better for you. Yeah. You can vote in that poll and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. Quick note about our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. They've got a new pairing beginning right now. They're going to look at Alexander Payne's Oscar-nominated The Holdovers. But before that, their first episode will be considering Hal Ashby's The Last Detail. That one came out in 1973. So yeah, they'll hold those two films in conversation. And if you want to listen in, you can get The Next Picture Show every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Well... I guess that just about covers everything, doesn't it? I never married. I don't see much of the old college gang. I'm a retired detective, and you're on the shipbuilding business. Oh, what's in your mind, Gavin? I asked you to come up here, Scotty, knowing that you'd quit detective work. But I wondered whether you'd go back on the job as a special favor to me. I want you to follow my wife. No, it's not that. We're very happily married. Well, then... I'm afraid some harm may come to her. From whom? Someone dead. Before we get to the second half of our Battle of the Hitchcock Sacred Cows, some poll results. A couple of weeks back, we asked you to choose a single Hitchcock film from the 50s. He made 11 of them. We gave you only four to choose from. I think all four right now are firmly on the ballot for Film Spotting Madness Best of the 1950s, which is coming here in a few weeks. Those choices are Strangers on a Train, 51, Rear Window, 54, Vertigo, 58, or North by Northwest, 1959. And if you decided to ignore our options, you love one of those other seven films of Hitchcock's from the 50s, you could write it in. How did it come out, Josh? Well, somebody did. Other got 1% of the vote, but... That was Far Behind Strangers on a Train, which received 7%, North by Northwest, 17%. Vertigo or Rear Window? Well, in this poll, at least, it looks like the winner's going to be Rear Window. Vertigo got 25% of the vote, while Rear Window took 50%. Bunch of movie geeks listening to a movie podcast, maybe thinking Rear Window here is the right choice. I'm, I'm surprised, honestly, that it's 
it's that decisive, doubling up Vertigo's votes. Brad C. says, Rear Window was the movie I saw nearly 20 years ago that jump-started my love of film. Also, has a more beautiful and passionate kiss ever been filmed that rivals Grace Kelly waking up James Stewart. Yeah. Needed a little more of that, but it's a good did, moment. Did I even, seeing her, seeing her face, seeing her is face, what I remember. That's what I remember. But then, yeah, but like as I said, cutting, cutting to the profile, and I don't think I mentioned going into slow motion. The choice to like use that melodramatic touch there. Oh, it's so great. Here's Seth Scruggs, Rear Window, my first Hitchcock. Is it the best? I don't really know. Its use of sound and perspective is unmatched. Also unmatched is my confusion at Grace Kelly's attraction to Jimmy Stewart. Here we go, Seth. She is a literal princess, and Stewart the Wonderful has the sex appeal of a broken toaster. <laughs> I mean, spot the lie. Here's Ben Kohler. If I have to vote objectively, I'd go with Vertigo or maybe Strangers on a Train. But I'm not voting objectively. I'm voting based on the movie I've easily seen the most times and has given me the most joy throughout my life, North by Northwest. The reasons I love it are the exact same reasons some put it lower on their list. It is maybe the silliest plot ever put on film. It's total nonsense, and it's perfect. Here's some support, Ben. It comes from Big Dan T. Rear Window and Vertigo are the sinniest choices for sure. But I'm giving the same answer I secretly want to give when asked the question, what is your favorite Bond and favorite Bond movie? Cary Grant and North by Northwest. Okay. Philip Bartell, who we had a chance to meet out in L.A. at our live show, says, when people ask me what my favorite film is, I always say Strangers on a Train. It's got everything I want in a movie, a compelling and mischievous story, beautiful black and white cinematography, delicious performances, show-stopping set pieces, drama, humor, and most delightful for a member of the LGBTQ plus community, gay subtext that tells its own complete story. And the montage that shortens a tennis match while concurrently extending the time a hand stretches to retrieve a lighter is an editorial tour de force. I love the other three options, but Strangers will always hold a special place in my heart. Thank you for that, Philip. I feel like Strangers on a Train, maybe the Hitchcock, many more people need to see. Just just yeah, not maybe so. discussed quite as much as it so should good. be. Dave Allen here. I voted for Rear Window, but shout out to Dial M for Murder, also released in 1954 and also co-starring Grace Kelly. I like the Columbo model of letting us know early on who the bad guy is and making the mystery all about how or if he's going to get caught. Dakota Arsenault writes, my answer would remain the same even if it was best Hitchcock ever. 1953's I Confess, a fantastic thriller with a terrific performance from Monty Clift as a priest who either has to break confession confidentiality or be framed for murder. There's one I haven't seen. All right, one last comment here from RMP. Josh mentioned that he's never watched Rear Window and Vertigo side by side. In the spirit of The People's Joker, may I propose instead that he watch Vertigo, followed by The People's Vertigo, Guy Madden's The Green Fog. Like some perverse Dr. Frankenstein researching San Francisco, Madden and company reassemble Vertigo from movie and TV clips that were shot in San Fran. Somewhere in the hereafter, Carl Malden and Quinn Martin are watching it on an eternal loop. Also noted here at the end, I voted Rear Window. <laughs> thank you, RMP. And thank you for the recommendation. A Guy Madden film I'm not familiar with and not surprisingly sounds pretty amazing. I'm, I'm intrigued. Thank you to everyone who voted and who left a comment. All right, let's get to Vertigo, released in May 1958, four years after Rear Window and four films after Rear Window. For a minute there, I was thinking, you know, wait, are these back to back? And no, no, not quite. 
Now, in between, here are the movies Hitchcock made, To Catch a Thief with Cary Grant and Grace Kelly, The Trouble with Harry, that one had Shirley MacLaine, then 1956's The Man Who Knew Too Much, that one featured James Stewart and was a remake of Hitchcock's own 1934 film of the same name. Then he also made The Wrong Man, that one starred Henry Fonda. Here in Vertigo, Stewart, which is his fourth and final collaboration with Hitchcock, plays retired San Francisco detective John Scotty Ferguson, who's hired to follow an old friend's wife, played by Kim Novak. He instead becomes dangerously obsessed with her. Vertigo was a disappointment at the box office and largely ignored by the Oscars, received just two nominations for art decoration and sound. But its reputation, especially among critics, has grown significantly over the years. One way to measure this is by noting its rise on the Sight and Sound Greatest Films of All Time poll. This, as we mentioned earlier, it's been conducted every 10 years since 1952. So if you look at 1962, it didn't make the list at all. Only 26 films made the cut that year. But by 1972, Vertigo was at number 12. Jumped to 1982, it went to number 7. 92 jumped to number four in 2002, number two, and then 2012 is when it took that top spot. Now in 2022, the most recent poll, which significantly expanded the pool of critics who were invited to participate, that's when Vertigo dipped down back to number two. Now, Adam, I just walked us through the increasingly warm relationship Vertigo had with the Sight and Sound poll. How about you? Have you seen this one many times? Can you remember the first time? Did you sense any shift along the way? And did you have a major revelation with this watch? Yeah, all great questions. So like Rear Window, I can't remember for sure the first time I saw Vertigo. I would have to go back and I I did find my notes from this conversation, but I couldn't tell from my notes whether or not it was the first time I ever saw the film or if it was the second, I could go back and listen to the episode where Sam and I, in a very early marathon, it was our Hitchcock marathon, I think our third marathon on the show, we talked about Vertigo. Now, just like now, Josh, those marathons are built around blind spots, but also just like now, Sam and I would occasionally include a movie we had seen before if we felt like it was essential, or certainly if it was one that we wanted to revisit. And we felt like it was pretty important to talk about Vertigo, even though the marathon otherwise was filled with movies that we definitely hadn't seen before, like The 39 Steps and Strangers on a Train. So I guess the short answer is, Josh, it might have been my first time in 2005 as part of that marathon seeing Vertigo. I say it might have been only because I also think, yeah, of course it's possible that sometime between the time I became a cinephile, you know, in the early 90s and 2005, I might have watched it. I remember when the AFI Top 100 list came out. I think it was 98. So I'm like five years into being a movie guy. And Rear Window was at 48 on that list, I think. Vertigo was in the top 10. I think it was ninth. So I did seek out a lot of movies based on that list. So maybe I saw it. But nevertheless, I know for sure I saw it in 2005. And then I know for sure I saw it in 2016. I remember seeing it, and also Letterboxd tells me that I logged it in 2016, part of the Music Box. It's 70-millimeter film festival, and I've got my daughter Sophie, and I might have brought Holden as well, but especially Sophie really getting into movies at the time, and we were seeing some films at that fest, and I remember thinking, well, 
not only do you need to see 2001 on the big screen, but we're going to see Vertigo on the big screen. Gave it five stars then. Obviously had a great experience with it, Josh. So here I am watching it for what I think is the third time. And I did sort of have a revelation, or at least I had a revelation in terms of a question I actually want to put back on you because I had a different experience with it. And that experience is tied to the dream logic of the film. I remember sitting in the theater in 2016 and like it occasionally infuriatingly happens, there are moments when you watch quote unquote old timey movies where the crowd laughs. Sometimes the crowd laughs a lot. And I'm one of those people who, even if I know why they're laughing or I sense why they're laughing, maybe even I inside am thinking, whatever the movie is, I'm thinking, oh, that, that doesn't quite work. That seems silly. That's, that's unintentionally funny. I don't laugh out loud about it. <laughs> I just keep it inside and think about it and judge everyone around me who's laughing. But watching it this time, I had a reaction to a few scenes and I thought, oh, those had to be the moments where the crowd was laughing. And you know what? I kind of get it. Hmm. I kind of get it. And, and here's why. Or here's what my question is to you, Josh. Does a movie that relies on dream logic as much as Vertigo does have to actually be a dream? Do you have to view this movie through the lens that potentially anything after... Anything after him hanging on the ledge at the beginning, everything after it is a dream, the dream of a dying man, the dream of a man about to die, or maybe the guy has fallen. Does it actually have to be that? Or if it is a dream, does that actually add anything? Because I can't figure out quite what it would add. And if it's not a dream, then my question is, does it does it actually detract from the movie in some way that almost nothing about what occurs over two hours and eight minutes makes otherwise any logical sense? There's almost huh. nothing about the film that actually ties together logically. But if it's all, I, I truly had this thought watching it, adding up all these different moments of illogic. I said, it all works. It all works if you feel about it like it's, it's happening within the psyche, only within the head of Jimmy Stewart's character. And so then it, it took me back to that moment and something else I had jotted down in my notes. One of those moments that doesn't quite make sense and you have to decide whether or not you're just going to accept it or you're going to dwell on it is him dangling from the, from the drainage pipe or whatever you call it, the eave spout from that building at the very beginning. That, that police officer watching the scene, if you had no idea what was going to happen, you'd be like, they barely climbed up that thing. How is that cop going to gonna balance himself and try to pull up Jimmy Stewart? Of course, he doesn't. He falls to his death. And then you think, well, who's going to rescue Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> There's no other cops around. Like, we saw what happened when one other guy tried to save him. He can't hang there for much longer. I don't, you know, so you're already, if, if your brain is working that way, and mine was apparently this morning, Josh, I'm thinking, that's weird. It kind of doesn't make any sense. A lot of this film doesn't make any sense. And it's either truly, it, it, it is, I think, ultimately, I'll, I'll say this because I, I do love the film. I think it is part of the magic of the film. But I guess I do wonder whether or not it's actually a movie that we should approach that way. 
we should approach it more literally as a case where Scotty's having some kind of dream on his deathbed. Because otherwise, how do you make sense of what mostly occurs in this film, including the ending? Wow, this is fascinating. I, I, I can't say, and I'm not sure myself how many times I've seen this. And so it might just be, it's definitely been a number of times, not as many as Rear Window, but a handful of times. It might just be once I've seen a movie repeatedly, I tend to think about logic and plot less and less. Yeah, I feel no, like I get my first watch too, is usually, usually, yeah, my first watch is usually like keeping up with the story and am I invested in it? Is it making sense to me the way it wants to make sense? You know, to your larger question about do dream logic movies need to be dreams? I, I don't know that there's a hard and fast rule. I would say, you know, I think a lot of people would say it's a cheat to say it was all a dream. And so if you're going to use that cheat, you better earn it in some way. Um, I have never that I can recall and I'm sure there's been writing about this, so maybe I encountered that writing and have just forgotten about it. I can never recall thinking Vertigo might be entirely a dream. Um, and not on this watch either, when I was probably more immersed in other things like aesthetic elements than, than on a previous watch. But I'm fascinated by your suggestion. I think it's it perfectly makes sense that this could be how this film unfolds within Scotty's deteriorating mind. I think mm -hmm. whether we're taking this literally as it all happened or whether it's something he's dreaming on a hospital bed, it is definitely the story of a deteriorating mind. That is for sure. So then I guess the question becomes, is it literally happening to him or imaginatively happening to him? Can mm -hmm. you give me another? So, so yeah, like the opening scene, I just kind of write off to, you know, special effects of, of the era. And, and that's maybe why it's not so convincing. Um, mm -hmm. but, I, but I bought it for the context of its time, right? I bought what we were supposed to understand. Um, and it was convincing enough, but can you give me an example after that, that where sure. kind of like hung you up where you were like, wait a minute, yeah, this has got to be a dream. Yeah, definitely. Though, again, I, I'm glad you phrased it that way because I, I definitely don't want the emails because they wouldn't be fair to what I'm ultimately getting at. I don't want the emails that say, oh, why are you nitpicking that? I'm not nitpicking it as whether or not it's it's realistic because I've accepted that the movie isn't operating on the level of realism. The examples I would give where it made me believe it's not operating at the level of realism in a way that I had never otherwise thought about before until this viewing would be things like think about the randomness the the insanity actually of like him randomly discovering Carlotta on the street not Carlotta I should say Judy on the street you know it's not like it's not like she tries to appear back in his life or he actively seeks her out he's just standing on the street one day oh and this, oh later when she's when she's later, yeah, out yeah, of later disguise, film, yeah when yeah when she's Judy he they reencounter each other because he just randomly sees her on the street and starts following her. And it turns out that it's that it's actually her. It's pretty in all of San Francisco, he randomly finds sure. Judy Barton, the woman who played Madeline. The I guess moment, he was just I mean, just quickly, I guess he was yeah. out searching for women. He was searching for Madeline, right? So he's he is, he's again, already kind of yeah, sure. Yes. Sure. What are the odds? Yes, I get, but, I but get that. Really, I get that. He really finds her. It'd almost be different if he saw someone who who actually did remind her, remind him of her, or or seemed close, but he finds the actual sure, woman, you sure. know. And um, I think the elements 
the elements that I, I accepted a little more easily before as logical because I was just caught up in the story, the detective story. Mm -hmm. And this time I'm not paying attention to that. The, the supernatural stuff that Kim Novak is supposed to be giving off like she's in these trances and, and Jeff, sorry, not Jeff, even though it's easy to say that yeah. Scotty, <laughs> John, in this case, have a lot of similarities there. Uh, Scotty seems to obviously buy all of it and, and, and succumbs to it, even though she really doesn't put on much of a show. She just kind of says some details and he's like, yep, she's possessed. I guess she is. You know, there's, there's also just the whole thing, Josh, if you just really break down for a second, the logic of, she jumps in the water. He saves her. And then he takes he takes her back to his place. Okay. Takes off her clothes. Yeah. Puts her in bed. And then they just kind of have a conversation where she's a little disarmed, but is never really like, who's the crazy person that probably is kidnapping me That's right now? That's a good one. That's a good one because I remember yeah. – uh, here, here's kind of like not a revelation, but the thought that came to my forefront, which is related to this, is this guy's out of control. And he's yes. out of control very early on. And for yeah, me, sure. that was a turning point. I, I had, you know, we were all we were all watching together. I think we all had the same reaction. Um, Debbie and our daughter is, is like, why is he taking her home? <laughs> it's yeah. like, wait a minute. This this has suddenly crossed a line. And I can see how that would suggest that maybe this is some sort of fantasy. I mean, we're kind of yeah. entering the realm of fantasy there. Yeah. But but I think for me, not having thought about this dream option, I was like, oh, this guy's really creepy. And and seemingly, this is where the casting of Stuart is so brilliant, even though it's been his persona was undercut, as we've discussed in Rear Window. This isn't like the first time, but it's sure. sort of brilliant still to cast Stuart and then make him play. He's mean. He's like a, a bad you know, a really yeah. bad boyfriend in rear window. He is a like cross the street and run away as fast as you can in vertigo. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I'm glad you said that because that's something else that stood out to me on this watch. But I'll also, if I haven't made my case well enough, and I'm sure lots of people are still dismissing what I'm saying, just even if you think through, if you think through the machinations of Elster's plan and the fact that he is, what wrung his wife's neck and he's he's dragged her up the stairs to the top of that thing and is waiting to throw her down all of that it, it the whole thing the carlotta all of it bad plan it makes so much it makes so much <laughs> sense if you just go along with it as a sort of dream or as an actual right. dream and not spend too much time dwelling on the actual details of it. but the whole film for me is really constructed on that type of logic which isn't something i'd ever uh, truly felt before that part of it, though, Josh, where, you know, usually with with great films, it, it doesn't matter, especially ones, even ones that start with the ending and you know where they're going. The journey is still a lot of fun. This time, I really didn't find myself totally engaging with the material as much as I had previously until post Madeline's death. I think this film gets way more interesting. But I also just have to acknowledge that I remember what it was like watching it, or I, I remember the sensation of watching it for the first time and being like, oh yeah, maybe she is possessed. You know, I'm yeah, falling yeah. for it just like sure. Jimmy Stewart is. And I'm watching just as observantly and, and concentrating on all the details like he is. But this time around, I'm just saying where it got really interesting for me was post her death. And we see what he truly transforms into mm. and the way the links he'll go to 
to change her. And that line, especially watching this, I know we watched him in the other order, but especially watching this after Rear Window, Judy's great line is, if I let you change me, will that do it? Yeah. Will you love me? That's that's what Rear Window's about, too, totally. as we yeah. touched on. It's all about if you'll change, if I'll change, will you finally love me? And here he is exploring it. And the other part of it, too, that I'd never, I just never come at it from this perspective is in the second half, almost being able to see the story. And there's a break. There's a moment where it happens. And I love this touch. And this is another moment that makes me think about Psycho, right? The brilliance of one of the memorable things about Psycho is the fact that it, it, you know, kills the heroine, kills the main character. The movie becomes a completely different kind of movie at that halfway point or actually 40 minute point or whatever it is, right? Well, here, after they meet in the hotel room, in her hotel room, he follows her back. And that's terrifying that she lets him in. But we find out later, we, we know the circumstances. But we know the circumstances because when he finally leaves, we get that flashback. We're privy to, or we see what she experienced. And we know, oh, wait, this movie isn't going to be building some big reveal of who Judy really is, who Madeline was, what Elster's crime was. Elster's going to get caught by the police. There's going to be a trial. It's not about any of that. It's about it's about Scotty. It's about his obsession. It's about that deteriorating psychology, his mind, like you said. But Josh, in that second half, once it switches over to us getting inside her head for a second, I started watching the movie as more about Judy's story than mm. Scotty's. Mm-hmm. And then that also becomes really interesting to think about it through the through the prism of this woman who under these crazy role-playing circumstances fell in love with him and then is so in love with him that that she's willing to play along. She's willing to change. She's willing to completely transform herself for him. And what what kind of loneliness does she have to be feeling? You know, what what does she have to be experiencing day to day? What is her psychology to be willing to play along, to go to go along with those circumstances in addition to the whole the whole crime that she's a part of. I just started watching it more through her eyes yeah. instead of instead of Jimmy Stewart's. And that added another another layer for me. Yeah, I love how it makes room for her character and her story as well. It definitely blossoms and opens up in that way. Now, now did did you say did I miss it? You you referenced Psycho quickly there, but yeah. but I was thinking, you know, it, it's kind of like the, the the death of the blonde character ends one movie. And we're beginning a second movie. You know, that's totally that's the same pattern we see in Psycho, right? So, so yeah. Just one last thing, you know, as you were talking about uh, kind of the dream theory, dream logic. I, I think there's maybe a middle ground that, um, as you were discussing it, came to mind. This is. I looked up what I what I wrote last time I watched Vertigo. I don't even know when this this was, but I, I wrote it's like reading the diary of Hitchcock's id, and so I think that's somewhere in between. Like this literally happened to this one guy sometime, and mm-hmm. well, this guy dreamed this up while he was injured. It's almost like it's in this weird space, and we talked about you know guessing about Hitchcock's psychology with Rear Window. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually in this other space, this third space, which is Hitchcock's id. And I also just just saw in this review that that I wrote, it's so intensely personal that watching it has the feel of spying on someone. I, I didn't even reference Rear Window there, but that was clearly, you know, informing. This is like spying on someone's private interior life. And it is Scotty's, but in so many ways, if we draw on other Hitchcock f- films, 
it's very much, I think this is why it's more beloved by critics, right? It is the auteur film. It is the one where you say, this is mm-hmm. what this guy is expressly yes. mm-hmm. fascinated and obsessed with. And I came away thinking about this as being, you know, the, the confessions of a controlling man. And and it is Scotty, and we can again get into the meta elements. It is the director, the, the you know, the mm-hmm. film director with the amount of power that Hitchcock had at this point. And in light of all that, I think it's even more telling and impressive that he does give over 50% of the story to Novak after that reveal. You know, I I think that shows like we're not just going to be stuck in Scotty's head, but we're actually going to see how that affects this woman as well, who is going through just as much of psychological trauma as he is really just from the other end of the story. Yeah, I'm with you completely. And I'm going to add to that. But I I did just see in my notes something that I want to be sure to share, because when I was talking about a moment now, when I look back, I can remember the crowd kind of laughing and me being really judgmental. But now I get it. The scene where (laughs) the scene where he's in court or whatever, and that judge, like, I'm convinced that's probably meant to be intentionally hilarious, but it's undeniably hilarious. The fact that he's sitting there all solemn, Scotty has suffered so much. His, his, his lover, the woman he's obsessed with is, is now, is now dead. And he's, he's being judged. And the the way that dialogue's written and delivered by that, by that character, he just, he keeps saying, he keeps saying, not that he's to blame, not that he did anything uh-huh. wrong. And then he'll say like 17 things he did, he did wrong. wrong. Yeah. It's... And he'll he'll make him seem like this totally passive, weak, terrible man. That's... And then say, but we can't judge him we for can't it. Judge him. And, and then, you know, here's here's exhibit A through Z of why you should judge him. But then don't don't judge him. It really is funny. Well, and that and lends no itself to your it. argument because I have no idea. Yes. For, first of all, it's intentionally funny. It's an extended yeah. comedy bit. Yes. But I have no yeah. idea what that is. Is it a trial? I don't either. Is it, is it just like a bunch of guys who got in a room and wanted to talk about this? <laughs> it's, it's, this is my point. Right? This very, is why I wanted to go back. It's very to that. nonspecific. Yeah. Of course, Mr. Ferguson is to be congratulated on having once saved the woman's life. When in a previous fit of aberration, she threw herself into the bay. It is a pity that knowing her suicidal tendencies, he did not make a greater effort the second time. But we are not here to pass judgment on Mr. Ferguson's lack of initiative. He did nothing. And the law has little to say on the subject of things left undone. Now, someone will write it and say, yeah, that's how we do it in San Francisco. Maybe. You saw that of a fall. That's France. That's, <laughs> that's a jury in San Francisco. But to your point, and again, watching these two movies together, Rear Window and Vertigo, similar language is used. Here, it's repeated, but similar language is used in both films. And the fact that the conversation around men, around masculinity, about men and their relationships with women and taking control and domestication, it always comes back to a phrase, which is power and freedom. Power and freedom. They are entwined. It is as if in in Hitchcock's mind, or at least in his view of the world, and some of these stories he's telling, is playing with this notion or wanting to subvert this notion because he's he's doing it in the form of these these weak Jimmy Stewart characters that he he portrays on screen. It's always about maintaining one or both. And you really don't have your masculinity if you don't 
have those. You can't be a man in power if you don't ultimately have your freedom. So it's really interesting to hear how those words are echoed in both films. I've always liked it here. How long have you been back? Almost a year. You like it, huh? Well, San Francisco's changed. The things that spell San Francisco to me are disappearing fast. Like all these? Yes, I should have liked to have lived here then. Color, excitement, power, freedom. Uh, shouldn't you be sitting down? No, no, I'm all right. But another thing that speaks to this idea, Josh, about it being Hitchcock's id, and, and I really had that same sensation watching it, I remember catching something this time I'd never noticed before, which is that part where he meets up with Elster after first getting the assignment. And he says something to Elster like, you didn't tell me everything. And he says, no, I didn't. I, I don't know. He may provide some half explanation, but he says, no, I didn't. But then he says like, yeah, but I knew about this. And he, he divulges all the stuff about or more details about Carlotta. I love the fact that he, of course, knew that stuff because it's all part of his ruse, right? But he doesn't give him too much information. He gives him just enough information as a storyteller, and that's what he is. He knows that the thing he has to do to snare Scotty, he knows he's got the perfect audience. He's got the audience he needs because he meets all the psychological qualifications. He knows that if he gives him just enough, he'll watch it the same way we all watch movies. We have just enough information to get totally caught in the web, to start paying attention to those little things, to processing the details through the narrative we think we're watching play out. And he already knows what the larger narrative is that his wife is possessed. He knows the narrative, whether he completely buys it or not. He knows that's the narrative. And then all the details start supporting that. But he doesn't give him too much. He deliberately withholds information, just like a good filmmaker does. Yeah. And and then what does that give Scotty? It gives him the sense of control. He has solved it, right? He's that's figured it. it out. And so now he yeah. has the power and he has the control. One other quick control note. Um, how about the dress shopping scene? And, and note here, Edith had, again, costume, yeah. doing the costumes. Did it make you think about the one in Priscilla, in Sofia Coppola's Priscilla? Mm. And then I realized, oh man, was Elvis Presley doing this to the real life Priscilla at the very same time in 1958? I'm just thinking about the timeline huh. we're on here. And here is this here's this fictional scene about a man telling a woman what dress he wants her to wear uh, when, based on Sofia Coppola's film at least, that was going on yeah. in real life. But yeah, control yeah. totally, totally through this. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I actually, I went so far, maybe I saw this somewhere. And again, here's where I don't, I don't know the details and I, I kind of wish I, I did, but I know obviously that Hitchcock had worked with Grace Kelly multiple times and then wasn't able to cast her in at least one other project that he wanted to. And the whole time, I know obviously all the stuff about the blondes in his films and, and sort of being doppelgangers, but you talk about control I was watching this one through that rear window lens and the way he shot Grace Kelly and how great she is in rear window and was thinking, with all due respect to Kim Novak, she's not Grace Kelly. And it's almost like Jimmy Stewart saying, thanks, Judy, but you're not quite Madeline and I need you to be. And it's Hitchcock saying, you know what, if I, if I try really hard 
to make Kim Novak into the blonde that I want her to be, the Grace Kelly model. Maybe, maybe she'll get there and it will be just enough. So are you saying you're disappointed by Novak in the film? I really like, I really like Novak. I just think it's, it's an unfair ideal Hmm. (laughs) to hold her up to. And I wonder if, I just wonder, speculating in fun, if Hitchcock was doing the same thing. I mean, it's very possible because obviously the blonde thing is a real thing. (laughs) Anybody who watches three Hitchcock films knows that. But I do like, I actually like how the performances are distinct. You know, there's a real Mm -hmm. air of melancholy to Novak that is a different hint of melancholy, um, depending on which woman she's playing. Um, and obviously the one informs the other, that's the brilliance of it, right? It's the same melancholy, but she's expressing it, um, in, in a more, it's a little more underneath as Madeline. And then later in the film, she's letting it bubble to the top because she's herself and and she, she wants Scotty to see this as part of herself, but she can't let him see it all. Um, and so I think it's a really delicate performance in, in that way. Um, and as I said, I think Stuart is great just going full, I mean, really unhinged here, just embracing yeah. how like full on abusive stalker boyfriend, totally <laughs> just, I mean, yeah. like just ridiculous. Um, and in, you know, in keeping with the story. That's that's what this story needs. Um, but we got to spend uh, some time as we did on Rear Window just with the formal elements. I mean, probably the first thing that comes to mind is the is, is Stuart's, Scotty's disembodied head floating among the spirals, which is mm-hmm. already set up by those great Saul Bass opening credit graphic de- design spirals that um, are just, you know, incredibly, one of the things you think about when you think about a, a mid-century American movies. That is what comes to mind. And I also love the use of profile shots. Reminds me of the kiss in Rear Window. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But emphasizing his instant obsession with Madeline when he sees her at the supper club and he sees her, she walks by him and there's kind of a pause, right? She has to wait for someone to get by and we see her in profile. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of the same vantage point, but just holding that it that way, um, you know, really gives us a sense of what's going on in his head. And then when he follows her to the flower shop, we get something similar where we could tell right there, even if you're a first time viewer, there's a hint there that she knows he's watching. Um, Oh yeah. And, and there's just a little bit of, of, uh, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, something else is going on here. Well, it's not just the flower shop. The moment you mention their first meeting, even though they don't actually meet, what I love about that pause is, you know, of course, that's all part of the setup. Yes. So she is in retrospect, you know, maybe in retrospect, you know, what's really happening there, which is that maybe, yes, she's ostensibly waiting for someone to pass, but she pauses there very intentionally. Gives him time to watch. And And the fact that's right. And, and. The fact for them to sort of connect, but connect in that surreptitious way where she's not supposed to know that he's watching. And then again, the fact that she's in a profile, I love the use of those shots because it it matches the recurring use of paintings in the movie and the way we look at very distinctive features in film. By the way, on the on the note about (laughs) paintings, there is some what is it? What is it about that moment when we see the reveal of the painting that Midge is doing? We got to talk about Midge. It's Midge's head on Carlotta's body. And it's, it's actually hilarious, right? Like intentionally so, but also 
deeply disturbing oh, it's for horrifying. some reason. So this like, it's, is this it's is horrifying. more evidence so for you your understand. dream theory, actually. Yeah, you like, understand why he reacts to it. That I, you know, now that I'm thinking about your dream theory, this that's the puzzling point for me. Is like, what is Midge played by Barbara Belgadis? What what is she? Why is she painting that? I mean, what, yeah. How how could yeah. that possibly fit into who she is as a character? We know she's an artist, but still, and and their relationship because Midge is essentially. She's kind of the Lisa. She's kind of the Grace Kelly, the one who's available, kind of throwing herself at Scotty, mm-hmm. and he's doing everything he can yes. to keep their yes. relationship in a box. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, she's not like Lisa in many other ways, but but yeah, that painting moment, I was like, what? Poor Midge. I just thought, poor Midge, and what is, she, what is this is really yeah. desperate, Midge. This is really <laughs> poor desperate. Poor Midge, but also too far, Midge. Too far. That's actually too far. <laughs> Scotty's right. If I was him, I would get up and I would leave and I would be very angry. But that's that's actually another another case potentially for this being a dream or it turning into a dream if it's not from the beginning. Maybe it it's that moment. He's He's catatonic. He's not speaking when she leaves him. And then she doesn't appear back in the movie. Right. What she happens doesn't come to back. her? And it seems, it seems odd that for her to play such a key role in the first half of the movie, in the second half, she's just, she's just gone completely. So I, I don't know. I, if you Google it, if you Google like Vertigo Dream, which I did after watching it today, it's there. Sure. Like other people have argued it. I, I haven't done the deep dive to, to see if it validates my thoughts. But like, I know I'm not crazy in it at least being on the table, but it was something I had just never really paid attention to before, but it's what bubbled to the surface for me. One other quick thing I wanted to mention, Josh, was just we were talking about the connection or the many connections, again, back to not only Psycho, but to Rear Window and that last moment of Rear Window where she changes to the magazine. She changes the magazine she's reading to Bizarre, which tells us that Lisa's still Lisa and she's going she's gonna to do Lisa things. I just love the touch here of her being willing, her being Judy, being willing to go along with it. If he says he'll love her once she does these things, she'll do it. She'll wear the outfit. She'll dye the hair. She'll play the role. And I agree with you. I think there's such interesting distinctions performance-wise between Kim Novak when she's Judy versus Madeline. And some of them, I at least wonder, Josh, if they're not even in the performance, but they're in our perception of her seeing her through Scotty's eyes. But I, I do think she embodies different characteristics when she's wearing, as you would expect, wearing those clothes. She just naturally takes on a, a little bit of a different persona. But remember, she basically changes everything. She goes 99% there, but she comes back without changing her hair. It's blonde, but she doesn't change the hairstyle mm-hmm. itself. She tries, she tries to maintain some shred of her individuality not go all the way. She's at least going to keep that. Surely that would be enough. Nope. (laughs) Stalker abusive Jimmy Stewart is not having it. You have to go all the way. So this brings us, which we should touch on. So we we spent time on Rear Windows ending to Vertigo's ending. And yes, if you're, you know, if you're going to say it's a dream, I think this is why I, I wouldn't appreciate it as much if the intent was to make it all a dream because it may cover up some of the awkward staging of that ending where there's a you know the nun opens the door and she she, you know goes off the side and suddenly the move just cut to black it's like just we're done that's it quick so it's quick so but (laughs) that does make me think you know like 
Did she realize in that moment her individuality was going to be entirely squashed? And so she actually jumped like she she actually followed through. And whether it was this impulsive suicidal motion or it was just an impulsive like get me out of here. Um, or was she so startled by the nun that she kind of took a wrong step? Um, yeah. I, mean, I mean, what's there are your kind theories of, out there? I'm yeah, sure there are. Funny. And I and it, and it falls yeah. in between the ambiguously mm-hmm. intriguing and the ambiguously awkward for me, to be completely honest. And, and and I'm right there with you because I can absolutely defend it on an ambiguous level or on that level of thinking about the questions it opens up. I mean, just something about her something about the nun emerging in the dark. And for a second, you wonder if what really scares her isn't that she knows it's a nun, but it's just this ominous figure, right? right? And, right. and maybe it's it, it, it's almost as if either <laughs> Madeline, who didn't really ever exist, not the Madeline we, we know or that they know, somehow Madeline has formed or Carlotta has formed this this specter has come back and she's she's legitimately scared it's as if it's a manifestation of her guilt that's how i always read it mm-hmm. i always thought it was sort of this manifestation of her guilt and so then the the suicide makes sense on some level not a trip yeah and i i watched it again this time and not seeing it it's like hitchcock just there's nothing about the staging of it that really suggests it's a trip that she just loses her balance to me I, I feel like it's blatantly a jump, but then if you think about it in those terms, it seems absurd. I do think it supports a sort of dream logic reading of the film that, that she jumps because otherwise for them to have come that far and to have hit that moment in their relationship and finally gone to this point where, where all the truths are coming out and they're trying to reconcile their past the way Scotty wants to, for her to be just just a little bit spooked by someone and go, oh, it's over. <laughs> it it does feel, it feels way too quick for yeah. it to match a reading that is, it's guilt driven to me. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I mean, if I had to, if I had to choose, I would, I would say jump to, but it still leaves the, you know, the feeling that, and it, it's strange, like at this point, all the formal control Hitchcock had on every moment that, that it is still somewhat awkwardly staged and, and abruptly concluded. Okay, so we get to end the show here, right? Yeah. What's your answer? Which where you get you get one. Go ahead. Well, your answer, maybe, maybe we're not building to anything because it's obvious, but like your answer is way more important. You're the one that has something to lose here, or we have something to lose in losing rear window as your all-time favorite film. Are you are you sticking you sticking to your guns that the rear window is I want to know if it's the better Hitchcock film in this case, but I also want to know if anything changed in terms of your overall adoration for it. Yeah, I really worried about this because, as I said, I've watched Rear Window so many times and Vertigo a handful, and it's been a long time. And so I wasn't as familiar with Vertigo, knowing it's only increased reputation <laughs> that like, I probably got this wrong. Yeah. You know, I, I, I probably mm-hmm. um, need to reassess this. And Honestly, watching the two of them within two days, maybe three, I was surprised how easy it was to stick with Rear Window, honestly. And I'll just, a couple reasons for this. And we are, you know, we are really being nitpicky here to try to make this a thing because for whatever it's worth, they're both five out of five on 
letterboxed. I think I'd have, I, I think I'd probably have rear window first ranked and then probably psycho next and then vertigo. So, so it's like, we're really, this is a pointless conversation, but if I'm forcing myself to do it, here's <laughs> wrong point two hours in to say it's a pointless conversation. <laughs> well, I think that's, <laughs> that's presumed every time we start the show, but here's why, here's what I got to tell myself. Okay. For vertigo, why not vertigo? I think for me, it is missing to a degree. I mean, guilt is all over this thing. You touched on it well just now. And I think Scotty's guilt in particular, um, we could probably go into ways that this is a movie about guilt. But what it is missing, I think, is our complicity in that guilt. Um, something about Scotty being so creepy. And there are maybe ways we we don't even have to sympathize or empathize with him, but we have to somehow feel like we've been in that position. We talked about, uh, at least I did when we talked when we reviewed Psycho, how the movie insidiously ends up putting us in Norman Bates's position. Like somehow mm-hmm. we end up be feeling his feeling guilty on behalf of him. At least I do. And I never really have that here in Vertigo. That is not to say it's a fault of the film. It doesn't need that. But for me. To be the greatest movie of Hitchcock, at least, who for me, the best thing he does is make me feel guilty and make me think about that. I need that in my favorite film of his. So just the fact that I never really have that complicity in Vertigo maybe puts it a notch below. And then, you know, if you want lamer reasons, if you compare the two endings, I just I go out on a real high with Rear Window. I still go out on a little bit of a huh. Hmm with vertigo. And, and so that's, yeah. that's enough to tell me why maybe not vertigo. So why rear window? The one thing I haven't said, um, and it's just that if I'm going to pick not only Hitchcock's best film, but the best movie of all time, I really want something to be an entertainment. And this is maybe an unfair reason, but cinema, you know, maybe if, maybe it started as the documentary format, but it was, a it quickly became a popular art form. Okay. This, this is, an art form that also manages to entertain. And so I do feel like if I'm going to pick a movie and say, this is my favorite movie of all time, um, it's it's got to be something that a lot of people find entertaining, not just critics. And I'm not, I'm not trying to pull some populist you know, move here and, and be like anti-elitist. I'm the guy, I just recommended a three-hour Vietnamese esoteric film <laughs> in this same show. So I obviously adore that sort of stuff, but there's something about the movies being at heart a popular art form that if I'm going to nail down a movie as the best film of all time, it's why I've kind of considered Casablanca for this slot sometimes as well, is I want it to be a sheer entertainment. And then if it can also be underneath that, a genius expression of cinematic art. Well, there you go. I, th- I think I'm pretty satisfied. So I really, I, I do want you to believe I wrestled with this. I worried about it, wrestled with it, gave them very careful consideration. But but yeah, for what I'm looking for, I, I still feel good at, about where I'm at. So I'm going to respond to your eloquent, detailed summary there, Josh, by saying, all I know is previously... I had given Rear Window four and a half stars on Letterboxd, and I'd given Vertigo five. So there's your answer. Except now watching them within 48 hours of each other and talking about them with you, I'd probably just reverse it. I think wow. I'd give five. I think I'd give five to Rear Window and four and a half. Wow. To Vertigo. I did not the see this actually, coming. The ending's part of it. What you said about just that note it leaves you on, even as... I still think it is fun, incredibly fun to talk about and debate, but watching the films, I think 
I think I've tended to fall into the trap that I think you're alluding to a little bit here, which is that vertigo, it's not just that it's risen in esteem as it has over the decades on that sight and sound list, as you noted, but it does seem to be going back to your point about Hitchcock's id. It seems to be the more personal expression of Hitchcock's psyche Hmm. of, of whatever, whatever drives him. It feels like this might be the film where he's, he's wrestling with it in the most direct, but also in the most abstract way. And it's that abstraction. It's the elusiveness of it that I think has been the draw. And I think I'm guilty sometimes. I don't mean guilty in a bad way. I think I just sometimes lean towards the notion of a film that feels a little tougher to pin down. Sure. A little more elusive. Yeah, yeah. It feels then like it's the richer movie. But, but having now finally given the time, really devoted the attention to Rear Window, the balance, and let's be clear, both films have it. So we're talking yes. about degrees here. Exactly. But the balance between the brilliance of how it's made and what it's saying or what it's provoking you to think about, I guess I thought, well, Rear Window's the more fun technical achievement, bravura movie-making thing. And despite all the big flourishes of Vertigo, it's the one that's really saying something profound. And the fact is, again, they're both doing they it. They both are, yeah. Rear Window, Rear Window not only was more fun for me, but it was the movie that I had more to think about huh. after I watched it. So I'm going with what my experience was this time. Yeah. I watched them back to back. I'm giving Rear Window the slight edge. I didn't see it coming either, John. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, surprised and, and you know, I'm, I'm not really rooting either way, but I, I think the argument is sound. Absolutely. That was, was kind of my experience too. And we held them together. So we did the work. And I, I think what this means is the um, Rear Window campaign for Sight and Sound 2032. Rear Window at number one, it starts here. Yeah, it probably should be. And the fact is 50% of the vote in our listener poll, it would suggest that that's probably the way we should go. Of course, this was a top seed in best of the 60s. But if I'm going best Hitchcock, I think I'm still going psycho. Oh, are you really? Okay. One. Yeah, I am. I think that's, I get it. That's I the, get it. the one that that really somehow just captured my imagination and my intellect the most of all these films. But again, it's it's a small margin we're talking about here with these masterpieces. Vertigo is available via VOD and currently streaming on the Criterion channel. You can look for it elsewhere as you see fit, your local library, DVD, whatever the case may be. Josh, that's our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Film Spotting, and I'm at Larson on Film. The current Film Spotting poll is a devilish one. We're asking you to choose one Coen Brothers decade, and we're breaking the decades up a little differently. 85 to 95, 96 to 06, and 2007 to 2017. For show t-shirts or other merch, you can go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad free. You'll also get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting archive. In that archive, an early Film Spotting marathon, I mentioned it. The third actually was devoted to Hitchcock. Again, I'm not really suggesting anyone should listen to these conversations. We just spent God knows how long on. These two films, you probably could add up the total running time of the marathon 
I guarantee you the total running time of the marathon, all six films or eight films maybe, is half the runtime no, of the show. No, no. Yeah, it's close. It's close. Sam <laughs> Sam and I didn't maybe dig quite as deep, Josh, but we started, so there you go, seven films. We started with 39 Steps and we went all the way through his final film, 1972's Frenzy. Actually, I'm sure there's some decent stuff there. We did a Sacred Cow review of Psycho last year, episode 907, and randomly... Maybe it was a listener's choice pick or something, but back in 2015, is that right? Did you do this? Yes. We talked about the wrong man. I together? was wondering because I knew I had watched it within the last, you know, number of years, but I had forgotten it was for this. Yeah, that's what it was. Okay. There you go. Filmspottingfamily.com is where you can access those shows and more. In wide release, Lisa Frankenstein, a misunderstood teenager, has a crush on a corpse. It's written by Diablo Cody. Out of Darkness is also out wide, set in the Stone Age, a gang of early humans band together in search of new land. And as Pixar is re-releasing some of their recent films, Turning Red is hitting screens. Streaming, you can see a 2024 Sundance film now on Hulu about a teenage girl who is caring for her terminally ill brother. She butts heads with her mom, Laura Linney, and meets up with an eccentric right-to-die activist played by Woody Harrelson. That movie is Suncoast. In limited release, one I am eager to see. Maybe we'll talk about it a little bit on next week's show, Josh. How to Have Sex, the feature debut from UK director Molly Manning Walker. So here's some more potential brick spotting. Three teen girls go on a rites of passage vacation. It's a BAFTA nominee for Outstanding British Film of the Year and Outstanding Debut from a British Director. The Monk and the Gun, another one I know we're both curious about from Bhutanese director Pao Choining Dorji. He made the Oscar-nominated Lunana, A Yak in the Classroom. Monk and the Gun is set in Bhutan in 2006 when the country was the last in the world to be connected to the internet. Our friend Mariah Gates has seen it, calls it an Altman-esque ensemble comedy that is both a warm tribute to Bhutanese traditions and also a hilarious, biting political satire. Sounds great. Finally, Vim Vendors, His Perfect Days, a Best International Feature Oscar nominee, is out with Koji Yakusho as a man who appears content with a simple life as a cleaner of toilets in Tokyo. Next week, thinking about some top fives, we're really hoping that we'll get to Vendor's film, and we'll give Perfect Days some time here on the show. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Veronica Phillips. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.